The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21. We, we are getting really close to the end. In fact, um, I would imagine that probably... Um, will be done sometime in February, all right? And so that means that we have a new book coming up on Wednesday, and nobody knows what it's going to be, not even me. I have an idea, but and, and I don't want to say anything because then you'll hold me to it, and um, and then when I do chronicles, then you'll be upset and wish I'd have done the other. All right. Well, we are in just this wonderful section. Uh, it is so just a, it's such an encouraging and inspiring section of scripture. I mean, it's the end, right? It's the end. And when you think about it, it's. It's the end of all things. And I don't mean end as in the, the termination. There is a sense in which that's true. But it's the end in the sense that it reaches its goal. It reaches its climax. Everything that God's been doing from, from the beginning of time reaches its apex in Revelation 21 and 22. And so it it, it stands really as such a unique section of Scripture because in in a very real sense, um, what God is doing is he's bringing all of his good plans and purposes in Jesus Christ to their glorious consummation, and it will be the beginning of the beginning. The end is the beginning of the beginning. All right? So uh, we are, uh, we're going to start reading in verse 22. We've seen already the appearance of the new Jerusalem. And remember, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, is, is in a sense one and the same. Right? Um, we saw its appearance. We saw its measurements. It's a cube. It reminds us of the Holy of Holies. It reminds us of the tabernacle, the temple, which, of course, remind us of Eden. And what we're going to find out is that that's exactly what's on John's mind as well as he receives this vision. And then we see the building materials of this new Jerusalem. And really what we end up having is a garden city temple that is now the new creation. And uh, very much, uh, not just very much to do, everything to do with the fact of we had a first Adam and a last Adam. And if the last things are like the first, you have a first Adam, but you also have a last Adam. And where the first Adam failed, the last Adam actually has, has conquered. He's triumphed. He's, he's accomplished that for which God sent him into this world. And, and there's, there's another sense, too, and um, 
I've, I've heard Charlie talk about this before as well, and it's, it's so true. And that is that, that what we see in the creation and then ultimately in the new creation, God is doing all of that ultimately so that his son is put on preeminent display. In other words, you, you could say it like this, the creation exists for the incarnation. Right? We, we usually think of the incarnation as like some uh, act of rescue, and it certainly was that. But the creation exists so that the Son of God would become incarnate and bring about a new creation. And so John is giving us this picture of the last Adam, and he's succeeding, he's actually, he's actually genuinely filling the whole cosmos, if you will, with the glory of God. And then uh, verse 22, that's where we'll pick up reading. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon uh, to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so we noted last week that temples are built to, in a sense, uh, mark the deity's territory. Well, who, where, where's God's territory? Well, it's the entire cosmos. It's the entire creation. That's his territory. So there's no, there's no temple made with hands here, right? It is God himself and the Lamb that is the temple. And, of course, we already know, because we've seen this uh, multiple times, there is, in a sense, a replacement of the physical temple, right? So that, that tabernacle that is first built is, is a reflection of a heavenly reality. So you can see Hebrews chapter 9. And so you have, the, um, you have the prototype of the heavenly tabernacle. It's then made on earth, and then that tabernacle is a type that points us to the antitype, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. And then the temple does the same thing. And so the incarnation, in a sense, is uh, the replacement of the physical temple. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, as Colossians 2.8, I think. And so Christ now in heaven is the chief cornerstone for his temple, which is, of course, now on earth. And so now you have a temple that, that is made with stones, but it's living stones. His people that love him, that are born again of his spirit. But in the end, it's going to be God and the Lamb that are the temple, and the people are going to dwell in that temple. That is, that is we're going to have a communion, an indwelling with God, in, in which um, you will always be you, and I will, um, I will always be me, okay? You, you don't lose your identity but the idea of dwelling in God and in the Lamb forever is, um, like Edwards put it, it, it's like being swallowed up in an ocean of love. Okay? It's, it's dwelling in the, in, the, in the best and the most glorious being 
the one who's infinite, the one who's eternal, the one who knows no bounds, the one who is knowable but incomprehensible, the one who is utterly infinite and transcendent. And we actually dwell in that triune God forever. And when that happens, um, all sin will be gone. All sin will be gone. And you will have you will have a eternal union and communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that right now we experience by faith. But one of these days, faith will give way to sight. And so John gives us this picture, and then there's, then there's the city. So you go from the garden, you start with the garden, you end in the, with the city, and there's no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God has illumined it, right? So I love it when people uh, look and say, hey, look at that. Uh, the, the sun, moon, and stars aren't created until uh, the fourth day. Where did the light come from? Well, duh, God is light, Right, his glory illumines everything, right? And so here in the new creation, God's glory is completely sufficient to be the light source forever. And then you have this, this marvelous little statement, it's lamp is the lamb. Now, by the way, the, the, all of these things come to us as, um, as echoes from Isaiah, so, for instance, Isaiah 60, 19 and 20, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for the brightness will the moon give, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set. Your moon will no longer wane for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. William Hendrickson, who has a really great little commentary on Revelation, says, The lamp is the lamb because he imparts to us the true and saving knowledge of God, abiding spiritual joy and righteousness of state with a corresponding holiness of condition. I love that. A righteousness of state with a corresponding holiness of condition. Christ, the true light, drives away the darkness of ignorance, misery, guilt, and moral pollution. And so here's this beautiful picture where God himself and the Lamb are actually the light. And, and it, it's, not, it's not just like, wow, we'll, we'll really save. We won't have to give any more money to Envy Energy. Um, that's, that's not even the, the, the point, right? The idea is, is that all of the darkness has been driven away. And, and what, what is, what is uh, entailed in that darkness? Well, sin and misery and death, all of it that is the darkness of this present age, one of these days will be completely banished because God and the Lamb will be the light of the new creation. And so this is, this is like really good stuff. This is where we're going to live forever. So we should really pay attention. And so then verses 24 to 26 may sound kind of strange. The nations, 
verse 24, will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring glory into it. So, by the way, these two are echoes coming from Isaiah. Now, what's going to happen is that we go from, uh, in a sense, there's a fulfillment. We go from Jerusalem in Isaiah to the new Jerusalem of Revelation. But just listen to these verses from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 60, verses 3 through 5. Nations will come to your light, almost exactly the same, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in their arms. Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. A few verses later, your gates will be open continually, which we'll see here in a second. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. And then in the next chapter, chapter 61, they will build the, rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They'll repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So you understand what's in, picture, in view in the Isaiah passage is actually a rebuilding of Jerusalem. And it's, and it's talking about a future glory. But the way that John takes these texts is he, he takes them beyond the idea of rebuilding a ruined earthly Jerusalem and sees, in a sense, an escalated, uh, heightened fulfillment that comes about in the new Jerusalem. And so you'll be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. So uh, you read through the book of Revelation, and you find out that nations and kings play a big part throughout the book. And in fact, what ends up happening is that nations and kings are destroyed because of their allegiance to the harlot. Yet, yet we, we saw this explicitly. You see it in Revelation 18. You see it in Revelation 19. The nations and the kings who actually consorted with Babylon, the, the, the great harlot, the mother of harlots, they're actually destroyed. Now, so keep this in mind. So nations and kings that attached themselves to the great harlot to the evil city of Babylon. They're destroyed, but there's, there's something else at play, and that is through the blood of Jesus, people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people are bought by the blood of Christ, and they are made to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And so... On the one hand, you have the destruction of the nations, the destruction of the kings, and on the other hand, you have Christ redeeming people from every nation, every tribe, in order to be a kingdom of priests. And so, Vern Poitras makes this comment. I think it's, I think it's right when he, when he talks about the nations walking by its light and the nations bringing their wealth into it. The idea is redeemed humanity in all of its cultural divisions. So, in the new creation, there's going to be 
diversity. There's going to be, in other words, <laughs> I, th- this is the way my, my brain works. In the new creation, you're going to be standing there and there's a glorified saint and you're going to go, praise God, a Russian. Praise God, a Chinese believer. Praise God, uh, someone from Arian Jaya. In other words, I don't think that, that, that our identities end up getting erased somehow in the new creation. In fact, it is the diversity within the new creation that, is, that, that magnifies, as it were, the wisdom, the power, and the creativity of God. It's God who actually originally drew those boundary lines, and it is God who will actually save people from every single one of of those uh, entities, right? Linguistic, political boundaries, right? One of these days, there's going to be representation. And you're going to run into people in the new creation, and you're going to go, you were from where? And you're going to find places you've never even heard of, and God saved people from there too, all right? You're from Port Angeles? Wow, praise God. It's amazing. I didn't know there were Christians in Port Angeles. So Greg Beale says the portrayal here is metaphorical. He says the depiction is that of the nations now bringing everything they possess to God. Right. So the picture of riches signifies the absolute wholehearted subservience of the nations to God. And then John says that in the city, the gates are never going to be closed. And so I I think that there's probably two uh, pictures at play here. Um, One is, you ever watch uh, Daniel Boone? Daniel, do you know who Daniel Boone is? So, at Boonesboro, all right? I love Daniel Boone, so. And I got my grandkids got my grandkids hooked on Daniel Boone and Adam 12. All right? So you know they're going to grow up right. Now, somebody comes in, a traveler, guess what they have to do? They, you have to open the gates, right? What are the gates doing? They're protecting you, right? Not just anybody can come in, right? So you have to, if, if you're traveling, you come up to the gates, you have to actually get permission to go in. in. In the New Jerusalem, the gates never close. And so on the one hand, it's a picture of, um, obviously, figuratively, of sort of a ceaseless stream of, of, of pilgrims coming in. By the way, do you have images like that in the book of Isaiah? The nations just streaming to Zion, right? And so the gates are always open because of this ceaseless pilgrimage into the city. But then none of Zion's citizens will ever be shut out or locked out. And what you have in this picture is the very fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as the nations stream in to Zion. So I, 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 I love the, the, the diversity of the new Jerusalem, right? 
And um, I will tell you one thing. It will be far more diverse than this crowd here tonight. (laughs) Right? And there is something absolutely wonderful. I don't think there's anything wrong with us because when I go over to Zambia, everybody looks the same except for me. All right? So... But th- this, is the, this is the beautiful thing about the diversity within God's creation is that you are going to see the fullness of it as a fulfillment of the very Abrahamic covenant in which God promised that in your seed all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And so then verse 27, you have nothing unclean. Uh, well, nothing unclean or no one who practices a, a abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, it's kind of interesting because if you're thinking, if you're making that connection with, um, with sort of the garden temple and then what you're seeing in the New Jerusalem, uh, all of these things uh, actually end up having really cool little connections, right? So, uh, so who doesn't get to come in? Well, n- notice... Uh, nothing unclean. In other words, the new Jerusalem is going to be fully protected. This this doesn't just, this doesn't mean um, no sinner. It does mean that, but it means more than that. Nothing unclean uh, goes back, by the way, to Isaiah chapter 35, um, the highway of holiness that goes to Zion and so forth. But here's, here's, here's the picture. So you have the garden, right? You have the garden temple back in Genesis. And Adam is supposed to do what? Two, two jobs. Cultivate and guard. Okay? And sometimes our English translations that don't um, use the word guard. Okay? Those two words, cultivate and guard, are used later in Leviticus and Numbers for priestly duties. That's what the priests are to do in the tabernacle. So here's Adam. He's supposed to do what? Cultivate and guard the garden. And to guard it meant he was not supposed to let anything in that was not supposed to be in. Nothing unclean should enter into it. Of course, does he do a good job? He does, he, 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 yeah, he lets the snake in, right? And, uh, and so, so you've got to contrast this. So the garden temple of Genesis 1 and 2, something unclean comes in. The new Jerusalem, nothing unclean is allowed in, period. It is, by the way, it is guarded and protected by a better Adam who's not going to fail like that. And so, you have nothing unclean, temples protected, no one who practices abomination or lying. You can go, okay, well, that kind of echoes back to Revelation 21.8 of who doesn't get in, remember, and all liars. Uh, and, and, and that's true, um, but, uh, but guess, guess where the first liar was? <laughs> the first liar actually enters into the garden temple itself, and, and, and his lie actually plunges our first parents, and all of their posterity, which means us, into a state of sin and misery. 
And so here, the picture is that there's nothing unclean. So the, the, uh, the, the, the city temple is, is protected. It's protected by a better Adam. No one who practices abomination or lying. And, then, and of course, it's not just the serpent, but also anybody that, was, that, that demonstrated allegiance to the serpent. To demonstrate allegiance to the serpent, or in the words like Revelation 13, to be followers of the beast is to be guilty of abomination. And so uh, this city is absolutely pure in terms of its citizenship. The only ones that are there are those whose names... Have been written, that have been written in the book of life. That's all. That's all. And if, if that doesn't sober you, you have, to, you have to stop and realize that there is coming, there's coming a point where, where, where time as we know it will end. And you will have forever. And forever is going to be forever. And forever is a state that's unalterable. In other words, there's no repentance in the forever state. There's no turning in the forever state. By the way, there's no turning to sin or to God in the forever state. Everybody that is in the presence of God in the New Jerusalem are there because their name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. Which means they were chosen before the foundations of the world. It means that in time and space, they became followers of the Lamb. And their names were written in that book. And it's only those that will inhabit that holy city. Outside are every, is everybody else. Now, we've already been introduced to the lake of fire, which is the second death, right? That's where everybody else is. And that brings us to chapter 22, which has got to be just, it's, it's thrilling. We go from the imagery of, of the city, the foundations, the gates, the wall, and now we get um, what Greg Beale calls the photographic blow up of the new Jerusalem and guess what it looks like it looks like Eden only way better right? and so uh, we begin then he showed me so the angel still showing John stuff then he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. So, so you've got this, 
you got the throne uh, of God and of the Lamb, okay? And coming out from the throne, going down the middle of the street, is a river of living water. It's the water of life. It's clear as crystal. The next picture, on either side of the river was the tree of life. We'll talk about how you can have a tree on both sides of the river in a second. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees of the tree were for the healing of the nations. All right, so we'll just start with that. So John is now, um, he, he sees, um, you remember, I, I think it was Psalm 46, and there's this, uh, there's this picture of the, of the pilgrim who finally reaches Zion, and he actually is shown the ramparts and the walls, and he sees the beauty of the city of God. Well, that's what's happening with John. John is on a tour, right? And it is an amazing tour. And the next thing that the angel goes to show him is that there is this river of the water of life. Now, what's happening here is that you've got this river, and guess what? There's a river right there in Eden, Genesis 2, 10 and 11. In fact, in a sense, you've got two rivers, and Eden is, is in a sense uh, surrounded, but here it's the river. It goes right through the middle, right? And so what you have is a combination of passages from the Old Testament, and you have this living water. So in Ezekiel 47, you have the water that's flowing out from where? Does anybody remember? What's that? From the throne in the temple, right? So you think there's any connection? And the answer is, of course, there's a connection. And so um, you have Joel 3.18. Um, you have that going back to the river in the Garden of Eden. And then, of course, you have Jesus stands up on the last day of the great feast and, and declares with a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, and this he spoke concerning the Spirit. I think, you know, that you've got the throne of God and the Lamb and the river flowing right out from both. And so I think that you've got this beautiful Trinitarian picture of uh, the river of life that comes from the throne. And notice the river is clear as crystal. That is, it is absolutely pure. It's absolutely perfect. There, there, there are no imperfections or impurities in this river. And so the spirit who gives life is seen as as coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And then here, here's, here's the cool thing. It's just like right down the middle of the street. Uh, you ever been to San Antonio? Been on the river walk? It's pretty cool. It's actually really nice, right? <clears throat> but the river doesn't go flowing right down the middle of the street in San Antonio. <laughs> 
here in the New Jerusalem, you have the river, and it's just going right down the middle of the street. What's the point? The point is, is that that river that flows forth from the throne is, is actually the very heart of the city. Um, Ariel and I drove through um, Quincy and Portola last week. And guess what both of them have? Main Street. Isn't that amazing that both cities would actually have Main Street? Well, actually, it's not amazing at all. Why? Because almost every town has Main Street, right? So you've got, think of it this way, Main Street, New Jerusalem. And what's going right down the middle of Main Street? This river of living water. And so the picture is wonderful. It is, I, I think, the idea of the river being, in, as it were, um, in the heart of the city, um, it actually reminded me of that great scene in Pilgrim's Progress, right, where, where Christian... Uh, his, his family's begging him to come back. And he takes his fingers, he puts them in his ears, and he runs. And what does he say? Life, life, eternal life. That's what the New Jerusalem is all about, is eternal life. And not just life that doesn't have an end, but eternal life, not just not just think of it like longevity, but eternal life in terms of the very quality of the life of God in the souls of his people. Powerful, beautiful. Now you have the tree of life. Now if you can't make that connection to Eden, you could probably get lost in an elevator. Tree of life. Okay, well, where's the tree of life first seen? Well, the tree of life is first seen, of course, is Genesis chapter uh, 2, verses 9 and 10. But here's something that's interesting. You got the tree of life in Eden. By the way, remember, Adam is actually expelled from the garden in order that he not do what? Eat from the tree of life. Okay. Now you've got the tree of life, but it's on both sides of the river. Now, <clears throat> I didn't read any of my, uh, of my literalist commentaries on, on this. It would have been sort of an interesting exercise. Um, you go over to Ezekiel, though, which, of course, is the Old Testament background to this text. And what do you see? You see a river, and you see trees on both sides of the river. So what, what some commentators think, and, and I, I, I'm pretty sure this, this has to be right, is that the, the tree of life in the new creation is a collective phrase for trees of life, okay? Going down both sides of the river. And so um, 
I don't know any other better explanation. And so you've got the tree of life, and it bears 12 kinds of fruit. And you go, what kind? So like is January, like gala apples, and then February is peaches, and then um, uh, March is apricots. I hope there aren't any apricots in the new creation. Um, We had a massive apricot tree in our backyard in Santa Ana when I was in college, and we had a dog that was half lab, half German shepherd, and he was dumber than a box of rocks. And he would eat apricots all day long and spit out the seeds, thankfully. Actually, I wish he'd have swallowed the seeds and just died. But um, So I hate apricots to this day. <clears throat> when they fertilize your lawn... So... The idea, though, is they bear 12 kinds of fruit. It's this abundance of fruit. Or what's the point of eating from the tree of life? Well, you have life. So if you think back to the garden, the garden has an eschatology to it, right? The garden is not a termination point in and of itself. In other words, the garden does not simply exist for the sake of the garden. Adam is put on probation, and there is... There is something that God is holding out to him for a future. Is is that not true? You think about it. What, What would be the point, by the way, of saying, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat it, you'll die. Right? So then why, after that, is... He cut off from the tree of life. So the eschatology of the garden is that if Adam had obeyed and had been confirmed in his righteousness, he probably would have had access to the tree of life and would have been able to live forever. But he couldn't. He disobeyed. He broke the covenant. He brought brought death into, into this creation. And so... When you get to uh, the Revelation and you see this tree of life and it's just producing 12 different kinds of fruit, the idea is is that there is is an abundance of life in the new creation. Yields its fruit every month. So Greg Beale says the fullness of redemptive provision and to link it with the number representing the fullness of God's people who benefit from it. Beautiful. And so then he says, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so the tree of life, so think about this. So um, we've already heard, wipe away every tear from your eye, right? Okay. Now that doesn't mean you get to heaven and you're bawling and God, right? That's not what it means. In Any more than the nations come in and they're all uh, sick and diseased and need to be healed. It's, it's, the, it's the imagery that's behind this idea that the, the leaves of the tree of life were for the healing of the nations. <clears throat> how are people from every nation, tribe, tongue, how are they saved? Okay. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. They're purchased with blood. When you read the New Testament, you cannot help but to connect 
blood, right? The blood of Christ, with the sacrifice of Christ, which is symbolized by a tree. So, so most of the time, the word that we have, there's, there, there are two words that we have as cross in the New Testament. And one is actually cross. The other's tree. Okay. Okay. First Peter chapter 2, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Okay. What, what, what is the significance of saying that Jesus was hanged on a tree? You got to get this. Is that just like an unsophisticated way to talk about uh, the cross? And the answer is no. The reason that you have the imagery or the language, I should say, of Jesus being hanged on a tree is because Deuteronomy 23, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So Jesus is hanged on a tree. That's that's the language that the apostles use. Why? Galatians 3, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ is what? Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So the tree in the garden tree of life in the garden points us to a judgment tree which becomes our tree of life. And it is that tree of life, the tree on which Jesus is crucified, that becomes the healing of the nations. And so, the picture is is wonderful. Um, one Lutheran commentator that I that I like, even though he's Lutheran, says the harlot makes the nations drunk on corrupt religious practice and sin, but the bride invites the nations to drink of the water of life and to be healed by the leaves of the tree of life. Now that brings us to what has to be one of the most glorious statements that you read anywhere in the Bible. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. The tree of life that's brought healing, the last Adam who died on that tree, reversed Adam's fall. And as a result, there is no more curse. And so, I don't think it's an accident that John's talking about the tree of life. And then he says, and there's no more curse. Why is there no more curse? Because the last Adam actually exhausted the wrath of God 
do that curse by becoming that curse. And because of that, he not only frees us from that curse, but he actually, in the age to come, in the new Jerusalem, so completely reverses Adam's disobedience and condemnation and fall and the curse, he so completely reverses it that in the age to come and in the new Jerusalem, there is no more curse. None. What, what, are, what are some of the uh, symptoms of the curse? I'm open for suggestions. What's that? <clears throat> Sickness? Death? Little nine-month-old babies getting hit with pneumonia and RSV and you name it, um, and having to be basically paralyzed so she could be intubated. That's a cursed world. We we could, we could seriously sit here and come up with a list that went from here all the way to the back door of all of the symptoms of the curse. My own sin. Okay, so just forget all the other symptoms. Let's just talk about my own sins. They'd make their way all the way to that back door, all right? And so we live in a cursed world, a sin-cursed world that is slated for judgment because that's what, that, that's what the curse is. It's divine judgment. And so in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, no more curse. Think of it this way. That city which is perfectly protected by the last Adam so that nothing unclean goes into it is in a secure and permanent state of perfection. There is no more chance of a curse. The curse has been swallowed up by the one who was nailed to the tree. And so the picture of the new creation is dwelling in this garden city temple and the, the, the potential for the vandalism of shalom is forever taken away. There's no more, there's no more chance for the vandalism of shalom, period ever. Nothing to mar or disrupt the shalom of the holy city. That's that's where I want to spend eternity. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Again, so the throne of God, where's the throne of God? It's in the temple of God, okay? So the throne of God and the Lamb are in it, so you have the Eden temple. And so uh, so Adam mentioned, we, he served God as a priest, right? He communed with God. He's expelled from God's presence, but there's no more curse in the new Jerusalem. So the throne of God and the Lamb are right there permanently, right? It's not, there's no more expulsion. And so then 
It says, his bondservants will serve him. Well, that's us. Those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. So Adam was to cultivate and keep the garden, do his priestly duties. And now guess what? In the, in the new Jerusalem, you and I are going to be a kingdom of priests who are serving our God, doing what God intended us to do all along. The great purpose of God in creation will be finally and fully realized in the new creation, and you will be doing that which you were created to do. You ever notice, you ever notice that, um, um, so like <clears throat> inanimate creation, um, the wind, does the wind do what God intends the wind to do? Yeah. Always. Um, What about rivers and seas? And they just, does the sun do what it's supposed to do? Does the sun do what God created it to do? Does the moon do what God created it to do? Do the stars do what God created it to do? Do you understand that in all of creation, we're the only ones that don't do what God created us to do? That's, that's the, the dignity of humanity, the peak of God's creation, and then also the dregs of God's creation. And there's coming a day when we will do exactly what God has always intended us to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for me, When I live for me, I realize I am still not just broken, okay? By the way, broken, okay? Okay. Forget the idea. You're, You're a sinner, okay? I'm so broken. Okay, well, maybe you are, but you're a broken sinner, you're a broken rebel. And so, so every time that, that I choose me, which is like how often? Oh, like once a month or so, right? No, it's like all the time. Every time that I live for my own agenda, which is how often? Well, pretty much every day. I know that I'm not doing what God has called me to do. I'm not in conformity to his perfect will, and I'm not living up to what he's created and recreated me to be. But I do know that one of these days, I am going to be exactly what God has intended me to be and to do exactly what he created me to do, and I will do it with the utmost joy and gladness, and there will not be one single iota of a desire to do anything else. That's awesome. To be in that, to be in that new creation and to actually be serving the king in his presence and not thinking, you know, I'd really like to be doing something else right now. Won't ever happen. The service of the king will be our greatest 
pleasure. And it will also have a sense of fulfillment knowing this is what I was made for. So, next time you're confessing your sin and you realize that you put yourself above God or you followed your agenda instead of His, you followed your will instead of His, you did your thing instead of following Him, right? The next time that that happens, what you, you have to stop and think, I'm behaving in a way that's contrary to what God made me to be. So I confess it, I repent, and I rejoice that one of these days, that too will be no more. Well, the second best part of the whole passage, we'll have to wait till next week. They will see his face. And um, so... What a, what a glorious future we have as the people of God. And um, that new creation, we're not going to be shortchanged in any way. In fact, what we know is just a fraction of what we will know. And what we will experience goes beyond anything we could ever imagine right now. And it's totally worth setting your gaze on and living for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. And we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark about what awaits us. Lord, we have lots of questions and lots of curiosities, but Lord, just what we know is so beautiful and so glorious. And we pray that we would yearn for the day where we, when we are exactly what we should be, And we do exactly what you made us to do. And so we pray that we would look forward to that day and that we'd we'd fight our sin now and look forward to being a part of that new creation where every single person whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be there. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.